Would you pray with me, please? <clears throat> Lord, Father God, I, I come, God, and, and plead an anointing of your spirit upon the preaching of your word this day. Lord, would you guard the hearers today from any error that I may, may, that I may speak in, in the power of man? But God, where the, the spirit speaks, Lord, where your word speaks, God, would you drive those truths deep into our hearts? And Lord God, we ask you now, that, Lord, may you be present in this place, and may the words of my mouth and meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> well, this morning, if you brought your Bibles, or I'd encourage you to take out your pew Bible and open it to Luke 24, starting with verse uh, 36. Uh, Luke 24, 36, that's the... Uh, passage that uh, our new deacon, Jesus, read for us this morning. Did a great job with that, by the way. Thank you, sir. And so Luke 24, 36, that's going to be our passage. Um, you know, this past week, I, uh, I, I posted on Facebook about really how the last three, week, three months, actually, at Christ Church have been really a truly amazing experience and amazing time with God. I mean, guys, we just had an amazing Holy Week. I mean, did we not? Amen? I mean, God's showing up more times than I can count. We were talking about it in staff. We talked about only council advice. Just over and over and over and over and over. This became a thin place where the Spirit of God just showed up and touched, touched down, touched so many lives. And just about the time I thought things couldn't get any better, last week, if you missed it, I'm sorry, we had this amazing ordination service for Jesus Dominguez as well. Yeah. Exactly, and I mean, I, I just—it was just absolutely tremendous to to see the hand of God at work in, in a church, and you know, and we describe Christ Church as a thin place where heaven and earth meet and sometimes overlap, and it really has been that. And so I pray that the thin places continue in the ministry here at Christ Church. Well, so there, that's been going on. Well, as many of you know, also I'm about to have my our second child this Wednesday. Uh, Lord willing, Luke Samuel will be born. And so I, I, just, I say all that to say this. For the past few weeks, maybe three weeks or so, I've really been just preoccupied with Holy Week, all things baby. And to tell you the truth, man, I've really not been paying much attention to the culture as of late. I mean, I've just I've been engulfed in, in, in the things of the Lord. And, so, well, and there's things going on in the culture I haven't been aware of. You say, well, what are you talking about? Well, um, if you read the news or have watched the news at all, you'll know that in the past three weeks or so, there's been a considerable amount of upheaval in, in, in this country, particularly about a religious, or particularly about religious liberty. And it's been all over the news. There's been a lot of upheaval about religious liberty in the news. And this upheaval came when a law that promotes religious liberty was introduced in the state of Indiana. Senate Bill 101 prohibits state or local governments from substantially burdening a person's ability to exercise a religion unless the government can show that it has compelling interest and that the action is the least restrictive means of achieving it. That's the bill. It's a bill following the Federal Religious, excuse me, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, which was signed by President Bill Clinton in 1993. Now, big deal, right? Listen, I don't know the details of that law. I'm not a legal expert. We have people here who are in Wake Forest Law, the law School. You could probably explain a lot more of it to me than I could probably ever understand, okay? So let me say first, I'm not a legal exp expert. However, 
What bothered me the most was not the objective discussions I saw in the news and various media uh, outpourings that, that took place. That wasn't what bothered me. There wasn't, nothing really bothered me about an objective discussion about the rightness or the wrongness of this law. But what really bothered me was how the media in this country, along with some elite academic institutions and some in political offices and other voices, went after Christians in a very skewed way. And I'll save you the beef of all that. You can go home and look that up for yourself. But it really came home for me, okay? The morning I signed into my Facebook page, and yes, I do Facebook. That's, you know, kind of... I'm kind of old. I know there's some other things that replace that, but, you know, I mean, some of you are laughing, but there's a lot of other things. I, you know, I'm not into Snapchat and all that. I don't do all that. I don't Twitter. I've got Facebook. That's as far as I'm going to go. I'm getting off the train at that point, okay? But I signed in my Facebook page the other day, and the first post, the first post in my news feed was a shared news post, and it was by a friend and, and, and or, you know, an acquaintance, and... Uh, it had the picture of the governor of Indiana on it, and it was a news post, and the person wrote this above the shared article. They said, this piece of, okay, excrement. And then they proceeded to berate the governor's motives, stating that the law proposed in Indiana is not about religious liberty, but it's only about Christians being able to discriminate against gays and lesbians. I sat there asking myself, is this really what the general public in America thinks about the Christian church in America? What have we done to be mischaracterized like this? Is, <laughs> the next question was, is this a mischaracterization of Christians in this country? And so as I began to dig deeper into what was going on in Indiana from multiple perspectives and news sources and reputable blogs of Christian leaders, again, I'll save you those. You can go home and look them up yourself. Sadly, I think this person's perspective about Christians is perhaps more prevalent in our culture than many of us, including me at times, but particularly many of us in the church are aware of or may want to believe. So what do we do? Well, there's been multiple reactions to this movement against Christians by Christians themselves in the media flood. And basically, there's been kind of four broad categories I've seen. Some Christians just say, we need to ignore this. Though well-intended, they say things like, well, God is sovereign. We don't have to do anything. The battle is the Lord's. Well, you know, that certainly is true. But such a sentiment also carried to an extreme seems to miss the virtue of our responsibility as Christians and as stewards of the world and the communities in which we live. Trusting in the Lord does not necessarily entail one sitting on a stool of do-nothing when we in this country have by law and by right both the ability, get this, both the ability and responsibility to participate in our government. Okay? So doing nothing is not an option for Christians. Secondly, some Christians advocate running from it. This is my personal favorite. <laughs> it's kind of one that rings home with me. That's one, one day I read through this sermon, so you know, she's like, yeah, that's my favorite one there. They, they want to go off, so they, what, they advocate running from it. They want to go off to somewhere like Linville Gorge, okay? Or the, or the Nantahala River out in the middle of nowhere, if you've ever been up through there. You know, 
buy 100 acres, erect a 12-foot high chain-link fence with electrified razor wire, guarded by an automated weapons defense system, and just ride this thing out. <laughs> Lord help you if you show up at the gate and you're not invited, okay? Well, then we got others who, so that's one, you know, to advocate running from it. Then we've got others who are proposing a frontal assault. They want to take the fight to the culture. They want to be culture warriors. They want to fight through legalities and through politics and elections and media. And it's got this God and country thing all over it. And they want to secure liberty, you know, religious liberty. You know, I can hear it. I mean, it's just there. And they're, they're angry. They're mad. Then there's others who advocate subversive tactics. Basically just tell you, compartmentalize your convictions, play ball with the culture, look like them, hang out with them, and wait for them to ask you about Jesus. Beloved, those are four options, and I know I'm painting with very broad strokes here. <laughs> oh, maybe I get this thing, some more technology attached to my head. This is why I despise technology. Um, but seriously, guys, what are we going to do as a church? What can we do? What should we do? What is the way forward in this cultural mess we're finding ourselves in that's becoming increasingly unfriendly to the Christian faith? Those questions this morning are actually answered in our text today. See, in Luke 24, 36 to 48, Jesus gives his church a way forward. Jesus gives his church a way forward. What is the way through this cultural mess? Well, one, the church must be rooted in the scriptures. And two, the church must be active on mission. The church must be rooted in the scriptures. And the church must be active on mission. First, the church must be rooted in the scriptures. See, shortly after Christ's resurrection in our gospel text, we find the disciples, along with several other believers, hiding behind securely locked doors because of fear of the cultural situation they found themselves in. In fact, John 20, 19 tells us, says the situation was like this. The doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Well, why were they afraid? Well, think about it. The disciples, just <laughs> during Holy Week, we went through that. They saw what happened to Jesus. They saw what the religious elite leaders did to him. They saw what Pilate and Rome and the world did to him. And you know, when things happen like that, i.e. Jesus being betrayed, him being carried off, him being questioned, him being flogged, him being crucified, him being buried, the guilt by association thing becomes very, very real. In other words, if you've been hanging around Jesus, you may as well as be him. And so they're sitting around waiting to what's going to happen to them next. You know, it's kind of like when you were a kid in school, and I don't know if you ever had this to happen, but the intercom comes on, <laughs> and the principal, you're like, uh-oh, what did I do? Somebody gets called up to the principal's office to get a whooping, you know? That's right, I said whooping. <laughs> And a hush falls over the class. Why? Because everybody's like, oh dear, am I next? <laughs> Was I involved in the situation of what took place? Well, that's kind of what the disciples are sitting around wondering. What's going to happen to us next? Are we going to get called to the principal's office, i.e. Pilate, in the, Jew, in the Jewish system? So imagine that in their astonish astonishment when Jesus, in his newly resurrected body, which is not bound by locked doors, by the way, but yet can eat, <laughs> shows up in the middle of the room, greets them saying, Peace be with you. 
wonder what's going through their mind. Jesus greets them with peace. Christ and his disciples make small talk. And after they see his resurrected body that can both pass through locked doors and consume food, Christ does something rather interesting in verses 44 to 45. Please read those with me if you have your Bible open. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then get verse 45. He says, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. What was going on here? What did Christ do? Well, in verses 44 to 45, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that from Genesis to Revelation, from the index to the map, that the, or Jesus explained to them from Genesis all the way to the end of redemption history that the scriptures are all about Jesus and they're all about God's redemptive plan for the world and that when God spoke to Abraham and that when God spoke to Moses and that when God spoke to the prophets and even the psalmist all of the Old, text, Old Testament actually God was planning all along to bring the whole world into the embrace of God's healing and saving love through the suffering, death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That's why we, if you were here on Easter Vigil, that's why we read all those readings beginning in Genesis all the way through. And then after explaining these scriptures to them, the Bible tells us that Jesus opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. And Jesus' disciples would have been very familiar with the scriptures, the Old Testament, if you will, that they had. It would be a very familiar part of their life. It would be a very familiar part of their history. It's their identity. It's who they are. I mean, think about it. How many of you have ever, like, you know, have some of those old photo, family photo albums laying around? Anybody got those? You know what I'm talking about? I mean, or do we just have them all digitally now? Yeah, yeah. I'm, anyway, yeah, all right. Just imagine, you know, you ever pull those out, look at them to go back to your roots, think about your history, to think about where you're from, your identity? Now imagine if you're sitting there looking through these picture albums that Jesus walks up and says, yeah, all that, that's actually all about me. That's essentially what Jesus did when he began explaining the scriptures to his disciples. He's telling them, this book, this history, your history, your people's history, it's actually all about me, Jesus, and your redemption. Beloved of God, through Christ's death, you and I, we have been adopted and grafted into the people of God, just like those disciples. Therefore, the history of the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's also our history. It's our identity. It's our roots. It's really our redemptive story. That's really about bringing not just us, but the whole world into this saving embrace and love of God through Jesus Christ. So if that's what the Bible's about, I have to ask myself a question. Maybe ask us a question here today. If that's what the Bible is about, if this is our identity, this is our core, this is our roots, this is who we are, then why are we looking to politics, to academia, to the law, and a host of other organizations to guide us and to give us instructions to navigate the culture that we're finding ourselves in right now instead of the Word of God? 
And Cameron Robinson, one of our Simeon fellows, he and I got together and, eat, and ate breakfast the other morning. Cameron uh, gave me the, the, you know, the, what was it, the qualification for it. It had to be a place with grits. So we didn't, yeah, we didn't, amen, yeah, we didn't, we didn't go to Panera. Uh, yeah. We didn't go to Panera. They will have grits at Panera that I know of. But as Cameron and I began to sit there, we were talking about, we were talking together, and it was just an amazing conversation. We were talking about Bible and preaching and culture. And, and, we're, and, and how do you balance all this out? How do you do it? And that's kind of Cameron's question to me, if I remember rightly. He said, you know, Father Keith, how do we do this? And I said, well, you know, the best way I know how to describe it, I said that if the church wants to know where it needs to go in our present cultural situation we're finding ourselves in, we kind of have to have the culture, you know, on this side, okay? Like, just, just this is the culture. And then on the other side, we really need to get our Bibles out, okay? And put that over here on this side. And then we put a notebook in the middle. And then we, we prayerfully, prayerfully let the culture ask questions of our, 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 let the culture ask questions as it may of the church and God's people. Then we as the people of God most prayerfully under the guidance of the Holy Spirit must give absolute primacy to the word of God and what it says about the situation, question, or ethic. And then we as church leaders carefully affirm what can be affirmed in the culture. There's good stuff out there. And we need to affirm what's good in the church, what the scripture affirms about the church. But then on the other hand, we need to reject what needs to be rejected in the culture that goes against scripture. And we need to reject, reject the things that go on in the church that are not part of the scripture. And friends, that's basically what he means. You've got the culture over here, the Bible over here, prayerfully with a notebook in the middle, weighing the two things out, giving primacy to the Word of God, and allowing God to tell us how to navigate the times by using the Scriptures. And beloved, as I tried to practice this the past few weeks and looking over the kind of this hostile world situation it seems like we're in, and I, I really hope I'm not making more of that than what it is. I don't want to be reactionary. But as I, I, as I practiced that a few weeks, letting the culture sit over here and ask the questions in the Bible, you know, Psalm 2 came to me. Actually, I, 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 I found it in some of my studies. But Psalm 2, and I, I won't read the whole thing, but just the first few verses. Let, see, let me just read it and see if this, if this pings anything in, in your mind, what you've been hearing. Psalm 2, 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, or the, excuse me, the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together, get this, against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. I think that pretty well summarizes some of what we've been seeing in the news as of late. Can I just get down to brass tacks for just a moment? Okay? Beloved, whenever the people of God proclaim what the Bible says, okay, and we begin to get into the way of the culture doing whatever in the heck it wants, or at least make them feel guilty, and in a culture that celebrates radical, autonomous, self-centered individualism, that's the goal, that's the good life, people will become enraged, just as the psalmist says, and do whatever is necessary to shut down the guilt, to shut down the voices, and shut up anything that opposes the life vision of, 
I can live however I want. That was Psalm 2. Then John 15, 18, Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. That's not exactly one that many people quote as a life verse, is it? <laughs> Don't know that you'll find that positive, encouraging K-love life verse, you know? <laughs> You know, honestly, verses like that used to give me despair in my Christian walk. I'll just be real transparent with you. I would read things like that, and I'm like, oh, great. Why? Uh, you know, I got a personality type. I like to be liked. And I read stuff like this. I'm like, man, really, Jesus? Really? This is what, this is what, this is what it's all about? <laughs> but now, and I don't know if it's just because I'm getting older or Delude, you know, delusional or something, or I've deluded myself. I have no idea. Forgetful, yes. I find them strangely comforting. Strangely comforting. When I do what I was describing earlier, the culture over here, the Bible over here, give primacy to trust the Word of God to guide me instead of the blog sphere, Fox News, or whatever the media avenues there are. These verses give me hope. They give me much more hope than that. Why? Because when the world wants to throw off the bonds of the church, and when the world comes against God's anointed for standing against what God stands against, and when the people of the world hate Christians for standing up for what God is for, and they malign us because we are Christians alone, not because we give them a reason to do so, I mean, just as a side note there, you know, sometimes as Christians, I don't know how else to say it, we can kind of act like buttheads. Okay? I mean, we can be arrogant, we can be self-righteous, we can be demeaning, we can be condescending. We don't need to give them reasons, okay? And it's not an us against them thing. But be careful in that. But anyway, but when people begin to malign us because we are Christians alone, you know... I take courage in that because it means we're being like Jesus. What a privilege and an honor it is. So to be honest with you, I'm really not that upset about Christians having a bad name in a culture. Actually, we should kind of expect it because that's what the scriptures say will happen to the people of God. Listen, friends, it happened to Jesus, the one we follow. Why should we think that it wouldn't happen to us? Beloved, in what was perhaps a very dark time for the disciples of Jesus Christ, who were sitting there in that upper room that evening, fearing for their lives, when they needed a way forward in the world, Jesus didn't give them a strategy. Jesus didn't give them a war plan. He didn't give them an end with the political and socioeconomic elites of the day. He simply both explained and opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And you say, well, did that really work? <laughs> Go home and read Acts chapters 1 and 2. These men anointed with the Holy Spirit literally turned the world upside down. So the church must be rooted in scriptures. Secondly, the church must be active on mission. Read with me Luke 24 verse 
46, excuse me, 24, 46. And he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Church, we have a mission. And that is to proclaim the twofold message of repentance of sin and forgiveness of sin to all nations. Beloved, this is the agenda that will change the world. This is the agenda that will take the church forward in a sense. It's our mission that Christ commands us actually over in the end of Matthew's gospel to take up. This is the agenda that will change the world. Listen, holding on to religious liberty holding on to politics, holding on to legal proceedings, that's not going to do it. The gospel is the only way forward. That's the agenda. See, the gospel message that the Old Testament proclaims in the law, the prophets, and the writings that Jesus talks about here, Jesus explained those to his disciples. And, and I mean, and even if you go back, and, and it's all, actually it's all about Jesus, and even if you go back and read the scathing warnings and rebukes of the Old Testament prophets to God's people, the message, if you will, is kind of the same. It's all the way through the Bible. There's sin in your life. The Lord is an all-good, loving, just, kind, and forgiving God. He and His love will forgive you of your sins. Repent and turn to the Lord. That's it. That's all the way through the scriptures. That's all the way through the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's what, that's essentially what Moses heard. That's essentially what all, like again, what the prophets heard. That's essentially what John, that's exactly what John the Baptist shows up on the, on the scene preaching. That's exactly what Jesus himself comes on the scene preaching. Repentance and, of sin and forgiveness. The gospel is this. God is merciful. God will forgive your sins through the atoning work of Jesus if you repent and turn him repent what does it mean to repent well repent is a word in Greek it's metanoia it means to change one's way of life as a result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness and it really means specifically the total change both in thought and behavior with respect to how one should both think and act it's kind of like this Imagine if repenting is kind of like this. If you're going down I-40 East, let's say you see a sign and you realize, wait a minute, I need to be heading west. You stop. You get off the next exit. You turn around and you go back the other way. That's essentially what repenting means, or repentance means. It means that you're going down the road, if you will, of life. A signpost like the scriptures pops up and says, wait a minute, dead end street. You don't want to go there. You stop. You turn the other way that's what scripture does it tells us that sin is wrong it tells us things that like hate is sin that discrimination is sin that anger and rage is sin that self-righteousness self-centeredness is sin it tells us that sex outside of the bonds of one man and woman in marriage is sin that stealing is wrong that it is sin that lust is sin that murder is wrong 
What do we do when we see those things, even the attitudes of those creeping up in our life? If we go back to Matthew 5, what, what Jesus was saying, he took the law actually a little bit higher than just the basics of those. That even if you think about, if you're just having lust in your heart, you don't have to commit that. But if you're just wanting to commit that, you may as well have already committed adultery. What do we do when we find those things in our life? We repent. Here's the issue, though. Our culture today cannot accept the concept of sin. It can't. As one man quoted this week, he said this, and I quote, There's a radical incomprehension of religion in our society now. And that at best, religion is something consenting adults should do behind closed doors. He went on to say, he says, we have lost the ability to reason because too many of us, get this, too many of us won't and radically believe incompatible things. Incompatible things. Things that don't go together. What the scripture, friends, calls sin is never good. And what the Bible calls evil cannot be good unless God steps in and he changes it and he makes it good. And that always involves repentance. Beloved, behind closed doors is not where Jesus wanted his disciples in this text. And it's not where he wants us today. So what do you mean? Read with me verse 47 again. He says, and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed, proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. That word proclaimed there in Luke 24, 47 really means to announce publicly and openly in a formal or official manner by means of a herald or one who functions as a herald. Maybe I missed something. But that does not say sit around and be quiet in a public square until someone asks us about spiritual things. No, Jesus says publicly to call people to repentance and that the only way people know what to repent of in life is if sin is pointed out. That's kind of hard in a, in a, in a culture that Basically says, you know, uh, their life verse, I think Father Ben said this a while back, I don't want to steal his thunder, but, you know, it's no longer John 3.16, but it's thou shalt not judge. Friends, the only way to effectively repent is to know that there is something to repent of, and that is our sin. We are all sinners. That's the first part of the twofold message that Christ commands his disciples to proclaim. It's that of repentance. But the second part of that message that the disciples are to proclaim is the forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. Essentially, the word there, forgiveness, means this. It's the process of setting free or liberating. The process of setting free or liberating. Friends, being free and being liberated is not about living any way you want. Forgiveness of sin is what true freedom is. Forgiveness of sin is what is true liberation. Forgiveness of sin is what God wants to do. God is merciful. God loves his world. God will forgive your sins, set you free through the blood of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel message to be proclaimed to people, to the world. That's the way forward. He does not leave you condemned in your sin. It only happens if you want, it, that only happens if you want that to happen. Brothers, the way, or brothers and sisters, the way forward for the church 
and the world is through repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Beloved, you're going to see the church in this generation, I fear, take a beating in the public square as the church and the culture clash. It always has. It's been going on since the days of Jesus. It's been going on since the inception of time. These two things clash. The question is, is what are we going to do with the church? And this is kind of a part one message. Father Ben and I were talking about it this morning. We, we know we've got a lot of work ahead of us in days ahead. This is just to bring this situation to everyone's attention, I believe. But in the meantime, church, if we're going to move forward, we must be rooted in the Scriptures. We have to be rooted in the Scriptures. Jesus calls us to that. And we must be active in proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of sins to all people, not just a few. And we need to start with ourselves in the church. And then go to the world. Beloved, this is the only way forward. Would you pray with me? Father God, we ask you, Lord, to open our minds, Lord Jesus, to understand the Scriptures, to look to your word, God, and counsel. Lord, we, we all have different walks of life here, Lord. We all do different things. We all have different vocations and different callings. Lord, help us. Give us the, the, the desire, Lord, to search your word for answers. God, to, to turn the TVs off sometimes and the, the blog spheres off and the articles, Lord, and, and, and God, not to, and Lord, not to wring our hands in, in the face of what's going on. But Lord, help us by faith to pursue what you would have us to pursue. In the scriptures, Lord, help us to embrace the sufficiency of your word as your church, Lord. Help us to repent well, Jesus, I pray, as individuals and as a church of our sins. And Holy Spirit, I ask you, God, to, to give us a special grace, a special measure of love needed to share your love and forgiveness with a world that's not always going to look at us, God, with, with favor or with open arms and eyes. Lord, we, we humbly thank you, Father, for, um, God, for counting us worthy. Jesus, to, to be with you, to be your messengers, to be your apostles, your sent ones, out into this world with a message, Lord, proclaiming your love, your forgiveness, but, Lord, also willing to call people to repentance, Lord. And it's in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit we make this prayer. Amen. Please.